Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo. Uh, it's time for another Ortho Joe conversation, and um, I've I have my cup, and I trust you've got the area's yours, so we're all good. Uh, and, all good. Uh, you know, we kind of we kind of hit a, a landmark with our last interview with uh, with PJ um, Devereaux um, on uh, use of new technology in monitoring patients. That was our tenth Ortho Joe podcast. So it looks like uh, the people that have made the decision to start this thing aren't aren't going to cut us off anytime soon. So. Some, good somebody's good apparently news. listening to what we have to say. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, we thank we thank that one person. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it uh, looks like we're uh, we're on the move. And the other thing I would point out to uh, listeners is that the mailbag at orthojoe at jbjs.org, uh, we're we're appreciative. We've had a couple of very nice complimentary uh, postings uh, with what we're doing, and we're grateful for that. We've also had. A suggestion for a topic. Uh, you know, we did uh, we did an Ortho Joe podcast on uh, diversity and inclusion, and the we had uh, an individual from outside North America that suggested that we really do uh, a podcast session on focusing on women in orthopedic surgery, uh, given the high degree of uh, hurdles that women in our field have to have to uh, uh, go over in order to, to be in this field, particularly, uh, well, in any branch of the field, but particularly in academics. So that one we're in the planning phases on, and we, we intend to interview a couple of uh, uh, women in orthopedics who have done substantial res- research in, in this field. And then the, uh, the other thing that we've got uh, planning is uh, a ortho Joe session on uh, in, innovation. And I believe we've got Dr. Ed Harvey uh, uh, from uh, McGill um, uh, on the line uh, to participate in that ortho Joe. So we've got, we're starting to get some topics lined up now involving other inter- indiv- individuals because it seems like interviewing folks who are knowledgeable in particular areas of our field uh, bring a lot to uh, this. But, but today, Today, we're going to go back to the original format that we had when we were uh, considering this. And I've got I've to find my journal that just hit the floor. So um, I was looking through uh, the issue of uh, dated April 21st, and something uh, caught, caught my eye. Uh, it was a publication out of HSS that was, uh, it's on the, the timing of knee arthroplasty in relation to when arthroscopy has been performed. And uh, we've had uh, some discussions about the, 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 the issues with insurance database research, but uh, this one is with a national insurance database, uh, data from 2006 to 2017, where patients who underwent arthroscopy within a year before their knee arthroplasty were stratified by the number of weeks and they bracketed from zero to 15, 16 to 35, 36 to 43, 44 to 52. And they looked at the complications including all types of revisions as well as 
infection, loosening, and manipulation. And a big data set, as you might expect from an insurance database of over 100,000, uh, 130,000 patients. And of that larger group, 6,000 underwent knee arthro arthroscopy within a year. So they, they found that there was a pretty strong time-dependent relationship between the timing of knee arthroscopy and complications following arthroplasty. And they suggest, uh, based on this data, that an interval of at least 36 weeks should be maintained between the two procedures. So uh, I think uh, this is a very, very important question. You know, we've we actually referred uh, in uh, in earlier Ortho Joe podcasts on sham surgery to the the, the uh, mm -hmm. uh, New England Journal article that came out of the Houston VA on sham arthroscopy and and how that and and other studies have influenced the field to not be so quick to jump to arthroscopy for degenerative uh, conditions of the menisci. Uh, so we have had a decline in that, I think, in our field, but it's it's still happening. So I, I just got a couple of questions for you, uh, Mo. So first off, yeah. do you have anything in ortho evidence that would so, be pertaining to this question? Right. So because this is a question uh, really primarily of prognosis, right, um, which is a large observational study, um, as many um, know who follow ortho evidence, that we tend to focus on the randomized clinical trial. Now, that doesn't mean that this question couldn't be converted at some point to a clinical trial. We can speak about that maybe towards the end, um, but specifically our topics are generally a comparator. So looking at some form that might be looking at, well, you know, arthroscopy at two different time points before or randomizing, things like that. But no, there, there's nothing in our database that would specifically address uh, this question. But there's lots and lots and lots of stuff we have on knee osteoarthritis and the whole uh, I guess, gamut of, you know, placebos and injectables and, uh, you know, arthroscopy, all of these, I think, in many ways have the same storyline, right, which is, you know, you're trying to uh, limit limit the uh, timing or, you know, or or delay the timing to get a total neoarthroplasty and what are the implications of that, but there's lots here that you can unpack, so I'm happy to get going here. Yeah, so so what would you say were the, I don't know, the top three interventions, if the goal in managing a patient is to delay uh, arthroplasty, what, what are the, the most highly evidence-based interventions uh, that we have in the armamentarium today? Well, so if you look at, I mean, there's probably double-digit non-operative treatments that, you know, that we see abused, but, you know, there's your core therapies, right? The core therapies are always, you know, exercise, weight loss, you know, they, they, they become part of that initial uh, planning, which, you know, pretty well in every guideline, Mark, are going to be highly recommended. In fact, in the ORSI guidelines that came out not that long ago, and a number of other major guidelines, it's the number one sort of first, first, you know, first line treatment. They in fact even call it the core treatments. But then you get into the secondary stuff, right? Which is what happens when, you know, um, all those, you know, fundamental approaches. So diet, you know, weight loss, exercise, all that stuff doesn't seem to. Um, it, it, there's a plateau reached. Then you get into, okay, are we talking the NSAIDs? Are we now talking into the injectables? Yeah. And then you can get further on into uh, arthroscopy. My, I must say for most is not really recommended anymore, largely because of the trials that we've talked about. But let's say, let's, let's leave NSAIDs alone and let's get to the invasive stuff. So 
any of the injectables. So whether it's a corticosteroid injectable, an HA injectable, and even now you're seeing PRP um, being used increasingly. So let's say we group them as some sort of preventative uh, injectable to manage pain. It's funny, right? The exact same issues have come up and the same question really has come up is, you know, you know, how soon before a total knee yeah. replacement can you do an injectable? And in fact, there's papers that came out of uh, the, uh, uh, came out of the journal not that long ago. Um, I think it was, well, I think I have it here. Hang on, I'll get the reference. It's two, 2019. Um, the paper was entitled Intraarticular Injections Before Total Knee Arthroplasty Risk Factors for Infection by Richardson and colleagues. And here's the point. Same thing, large database, 58,000 patients. Uh, ultimately, they identified that it was the cutoff was three months, less than three months or right. after. So if it's within three months, you know, higher risk. If it's, you know, so the argument was, you know, don't have an injection before totally, you know, uh, at, uh, you know, before three months. This particular study looking at arthroscopy is interesting, right? It's more invasive um, and therefore you're thinking, well, possibly you'd extend that um, that window. And this looks like it's, you know, maybe three times that amount now, so about nine months or so. Yeah. But overall, it's the same kind of messaging we're seeing going across. Yeah, delay is good and limiting yeah. the risks. Right. Yeah, so in, in my practice, uh, being a, a I, I get still, still an avid cyclist, but, you know, a former guy that used to try to go fast, I mean, my biggest recommendation to almost every patient with knee OA is get a bike. Uh, make sure that <laughs> make sure the seat is adjusted at the right right level and yeah. ride it four to five days a week for at least thirty to forty five minutes. And mm -hmm. it is remarkable. It's I, I have uh, a, a an X ray that would uh, would would put me in a, as a candidate for knee arthroplasty. But you know, I've been able to avoid it for decades just with the bike. So. Um, yeah, so core, 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 like fundamental stuff you've done, and you've never required any injectable, never tried an injectable. Nope. Okay, nope. yeah, never, never, no. But yeah. I, I, I ride, uh, and I know you yeah. do too, because I've seen you yeah. on. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. My, on mountain biking. But. Between us, I, what you're doing on a road and what I'm doing on a trail, very different things. <laughs> you are ten times fitter than I am, so I'm not even going to try to discuss what that means. And I yeah. like. I like gravity taking me you know, rather than having to use it against me. Whatever the scientist you are, Mo. Yeah. 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 Okay. Anyways. So, so let's go back to this paper a little bit. So, yeah. it, what really are the essential weaknesses of an insurance database approach for this question? What What would you advise a uh, a resident yeah. or a, a young academic faculty? Mm -hmm. Are the real issues with uh, with such a design? Well, I mean, you know, if, and, and I'll speak as a purist. So, you know, and I'm not saying I'm a purist, but that's, you know, a purist may look at this way. First of all, you know, in the hierarchy is in, you know, I think it's been drilled into our heads that if you're looking um, at um, problems, a clinical trials important. However, however, um, when the question is one of prognosis, uh, one might argue that a large observational study is quite, you know, is quite appropriate. In this particular case, a prospective cohort study would be the highest in that hierarchy. Now, where does a database, um, where does a database, I, I think, get challenged? Well, it's not necessarily hypothesis driven, as you know. And I know this yeah. has been an issue that you and I have discussed for forever, which is, you know, um, 
collecting data for the sake of collecting data is valuable and helpful, but without a hypothesis and a plan, you often have, okay, well now um, we don't get to collect the data exactly the way we'd like. So in other words, we have concern about how the outcomes are really being measured. We're not sure if they're fully being measured. Mm -hmm. We don't really know who's totally getting in. Well, I guess we know who's getting in. We don't know who's not getting in to some degree, right? And that could be a very important group of people. And, 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 in, and, in, this, and in this particular uh, issue, uh, uh, instance, the fact that the patients are insured is is a big, big confounder of everything we know about socioeconomic impact on musculoskeletal outcomes, right? Sure, right. So there is definitely a group uh, that's being unrepresented in this particular model. But again, you know, so that so that would be a challenge. You know, so who gets in, who, who doesn't? Um, how do we actually identify the risk factor and how confident are we that it's being accurately recorded, right? So again, we aren't you know, it's different that if you had planned a study with data forms, we say these are the critical information we need, and these are the critical outcomes, and here's the time points. So you're, you know, it's being quality checked through the whole system. When you have a almost what would be looking like a retrospective look at a large database, because you're saying it's been collected, we're looking back, you have to go with the cutoffs that patients provided, or you have to go with that. So you're making the best of a situation, which is fine, because remember, in the absence of anything else, this is important information. So it's not to simply say that we should discount everything that comes from a, from a non-RCT or certainly from a non-prospective cohort study. It just means that we should be aware um, that, you know, that there are going to be issues and potential confounders and potential things that we'd have to take uh, into consideration. And we'd have to look at it in the totality of all the other available evidence. Right. So it, yeah. it, it's really all about confounders, uh, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest ones uh, in this particular insurance database was what what system or what surgeon uh, treated the patient because if it's a very busy high volume total knee surgeon they may have the patient might have to wait 6 weeks which is going to add to that weeks between arthroscopy and arthroplasty and it's not it's not disease related or symptom related uh, it's just the fact that they were being treated by a very busy surgeon with uh, a long wait list Oh, absolutely. And, and it, it is interesting that there are a number of smaller studies. Now, remember, uh, you know, so the value of a large uh, administrative database is that you get precision, right? So if you look at, you know, percentages, small percentages can become very, very important because it's, an, you know, it's a large number. A number of studies in the, you know, 500 to 1,000 range or 300 to 1,000 range, a lot of them that are, you know, single surgeon haven't necessarily shown um, dramatic, you know, effects. And now you can argue that they just weren't sensitive enough to, to do it. But you can also argue that, you know, some of these other studies are, are, are we're collecting data based on their own in, in practices. So I think once again, you know, looking at the totality of information will be helpful. Not saying that um, this is by any means, uh, you know, not one of the more helpful studies out there. It's important to have this number. But the question always is, is when someone puts a, a strict cutoff, you know, you and I both know that it's it's very difficult, right? To say, like, it is difficult to say, okay, okay, if someone comes in just after nine months, they're good. Uh, if they're eight months, yeah. they're, you know, it's not, yeah. it's like a p-value of 0.04 and 0.06. It doesn't really, right? It's a, it's probably more of a continuum. But we're just not catching it if there is an effect at all. Right. And this was really brought out uh, in the, uh, the the discussion, um, uh, the commentary by Morgan Jones uh, from the Cleveland Clinic, that the, th these are issues that it, that 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 strict number of 36 weeks is 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 probably not something that should be hard and fast in the in the clinical decision making realm, uh, but we but we should consider 
uh, getting some time between an arthroscopy and, and an arthroplasty. Yeah. Uh, and, and I guess I guess the other question, right to your very first question, is: Is arthroscopy in the face of knee osteoarthritis evidence based to begin with? Right. So I the see. other question would be: Is we should be really examining when we are even considering it. And a patient who we think ultimately needs a total joint, what would be those specific you know situations where you'd absolutely be thinking arthroscopy is is needed? So that in itself would be an important you know consideration in terms of education around this. Yeah. I think for the most part, uh, the, the the vast majority of orthopedic surgeons would not recommend it, giving the current level of evidence, unless there was a real mechanical yeah. uh, issue, uh, you know, a locking that uh, seemed to be related to an unstable meniscal tear or something like that. Uh, I, I believe that would be what the majority of uh, surgeons would say today. And, I, yeah. and again, Morgan backed that up in the commentary. So now I'm gonna uh, really put you on the spot here as a, a master uh, design of clinical trials. How, if, if you had an unlimited source of funding for a trial, how yeah. would you design a trial to answer this question? Yeah, you know, it, it's not an easy one to do because there's not an easy cut point, right? So as much as we say, and that and that gets back to this, right? So let's say um, options that exist to us would be, um, one would be, you know, truly saying, okay, can we uh, experiment with when someone gets an arthroscopy? So we identify a host of patients, um, we identify um, that they're going to get arthroscopy, um, you know, and they get it, um, you know, but one is going to wait uh, a shorter period of time or a longer period of time after that. And that's going to have to be agreed upon by, you know, the patient that, that they're going to go ahead. So you could have um, someone wait over a year for their surgery or someone wait uh, less than that, uh, you know, obviously in, in that shorter period of time. To that, the, the challenge with doing a trial with, with the data set we have now is that I don't know if we actually have enough information that would help guide a trial to be designed. That would be one. The second one would be is, you would have to be given the system level uh, issues you just talked about, Mark. It's not that easy to be able to control exactly when a patient is going to have, uh, you know, their their surgery. Although you can within reason, right? And also, yeah, yeah. the bigger question is going to be: is if you had access to give that patient an earlier procedure and you, you know, I guess delayed them in a way, right? That would be a challenge. The same issue came up in the, you know, do you accelerate hip fracture care? Well, you can't randomize someone to delayed care. Really, it's not ethical. So all you could do is say whatever your routine would be, we'll see if we push that up by half, right? We can accelerate you, but we don't probably can, you know, we're not gonna delay you. We're gonna, you know, extend. so that becomes a bit of a challenge there as well. Sure, what, what about just simply having uh, an inclusion criteria that the patient is willing to wait a year uh, before undergoing arthroplasty if they agree to have arthroscopy? Yeah, and, and, no, no. And, and, yeah. and then look at the people that uh, fall out um, yeah, no, no, be? you're absolutely right. You're yeah. absolutely right. Now, you can imagine someone willing to wait a year uh, may in and of itself be, uh, you know, uh, in itself confounded by, well, how severe the issue are, how serious uh, it is, and all the other things that would go on. And if someone has mild, milder symptoms, um, you know, and, and quite frankly, they have to be, they, you know, um, you know the, the challenge with this particular trial is, you know, for you to be able to say, we're just going to scope patients, then you'd have to give evidence for why would you be scoping patients yeah. 
as part of a trial unless they have a reason. Um, yeah. So the challenge here is going to be getting over the hurdles of actually getting um, the, you know, the evidence is always the hurdle. <laughs> the evidence, it's it's going to be, well, well, but no one does that or should do it right. But we want to test this other hypothesis, but no one should be doing arthroscopy in this, in this particular indication. Right. Good point. Good right. point. Right. Yeah. And that will be the unfortunate cycle. But if you were going to do it, um, you know, I think that's a reasonable approach. Yeah. And then, and then there's always uh, with, with, uh, if you were able to conduct a trial like this, that the rehabilitation confounders are really hard to measure. Like how do, how do you how do you control for or or assess that person that gets the bike and rides five to six days a week and and loses thirty pounds in the I mean you have to you have to be really really careful to collect all those confounders. Yeah, in, uh, my, in, yeah, in, in my mind, design. I think I agree with you. And if you look at also from the perspective of I mean, in my mind, if you look at the perspective of where you think there could be a plausible biological rationale for an outcome risk, you can argue that, okay, if you get an actual invasive procedure early, and then you're having another procedure, you could talk about the possibility of infection being, you know, the, you know a, a reasonable link. But when you start talking about revision procedures and other things like that, and rehab and functional gain, it seems to me there's way too many confounders that uh, would have to be sorted out. And who knows? I mean, this may be, you know, suggesting there's something happening, but it could very well be, you know, uh, a non-fact if, if, if there in fact was a trial. The argument for the infection, though, because it's been also demonstrated potentially also with, with other, you know, you know, um, like, like, uh, injectables, for example, I think that gets a little bit more robust in the ability and you can measure that. Right. And you wouldn't, yeah. you would probably argue though, that someone cycling on their bike is probably not more or less likely to get an infection. Right. So, right. Mm. but you could argue that their function could be very different as well as their you know risk of revision could be very different. Yeah. Right. Well, given all the difficulties with the designing an appropriate RCT for this question, yeah. Uh, it seems like the editorial process was right, and credit yeah. to Chuck Clark, the deputy editor for Knee, absolutely uh, for oh, no, no. Uh, and the reviewer. So I, yeah. I think it was uh, a good idea to to publish this study from uh, HSS, and and it's it's well done, and and does help us with clinical decision making. Yeah, and my point, I mean, you know, when you have a large number of patients, you've got a cohort, you have a thoughtful group of investigators who have you know really tried to uh, you know make sense of that information. I think we've had to get this stuff out. And, and, and do exactly what you and I are doing is having a, you know, a, a debate about it. And hopefully, you know, our, those who else who listen and want to join this debate can certainly do so. And, uh, you know, more and more information is better. And who knows what the truth truly is. Um, but I think the more we discuss it, I think we all get closer to it. Yeah, no question about it. No question about it. Well, it's been a great discussion and always an advantage to our listening audience with your expertise and your research design, uh, Mo. So, um, I think we're going to sign off, but just to remind again uh, the audience that uh, coming up, we've got uh, innovation in uh, orthopedics with uh, our good friend uh, from uh, McGill. Um, and uh, after that, uh, we'll be addressing the issue of women in orthopedics. So stay tuned. Uh, we'll be interviewing experts in these fields. And uh, until then, enjoy your second and third cup of coffee, Mo. Absolutely. Great talking Absolutely. to you as always. Yeah. I look forward to next two sessions too. They're going to be yep. exciting. Yeah. Cheers. All right. Take care, everyone.